Hello, everyone. Uh, good evening. Welcome to another episode of Reality Bites with me, Nupujay Sharma. I am the editor in chief of Op India. Today, we have a very special guest to discuss an extremely essential subject. The need for this discussion stems from the recent comments made by CJI DY Chandrachur, delivering the Ashok Desai Memorial Lecture on Law and Morality: The Bounds and Reaches. The CGI made references to intersectionality and critical race theory. While reading the transcript, it became evident that CRT was now being used to talk about majoritarian morality and dividing Hindus into two distinct groups, the oppressed and the oppressors. The need to talk about the dangers of this narrative stemmed from the thought that perhaps the only person as of now who has written extensively about CRT and how the Marxist ideology is being imported to India, leading to disastrous consequences was Mr. Rajiv Malhotra. In his new book, Snakes in the Ganga, Rajiv Ji has extensively written about CRT, intersectionality, and so on and so forth, and the dangers of the application of such a divisive theory to break Hindus. So welcome, Rajiv Ji. Thank you so much uh, for joining us in this conversation. Thank you, Nupur. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you, sir. So uh, my first question to you is how you interpret what CJI Chandrachur said. And to help our audience, I'm going to read exactly what he said in his speech. And I quote, an individual is not always a part of solely one group, and it cannot be assumed that an individual would only reflect the culture or community of one group. Individuals might identify with multiple group constructs, and in that case, an exposition that their morality would be specific to one group is a misnomer. While discussing group-specific culture, concerns of intersectionality cannot be ignored. Critical race scholars have argued how the concerns of black women were different from those of white women in the United States, as the former sometimes faced simultaneous discrimination on the basis of race and gender. Intersectional identities are multiple, and that is why justifications for moral judgments relative to one group have their fallacies. To counter the social morality of dominant groups that are imposed under the garb of common morality, there is a need to shift the conversation towards values enshrined in the constitution. This is what CJI Chandrachur said in his speech. Now, sir, how do you interpret what he said? Because when I was trying to break it down and I had a conversation with you, I couldn't particularly understand whether he was supporting CRT in the Indian context, whether he was opposed to the critical race theory or whether he was mixing it all up. I couldn't understand. So how, what do you make of it? So the short answer is he's supporting critical race theory and bringing it to India. Uh, the long answer is that actually this is a very loaded statement. Uh, people in India are not able to understand because they haven't understood the background to all of this. So, you know, when you take it at face value, it just it means only a certain thing. But it, he's talking to others who are well informed, who have also come from places like Harvard, who have also been educated in this whole critical race theory. So he's building his own ecosystem of like minded people in, in the judiciary and in politics and in media. And he's speaking to them in a coded language. So this needs to be decodified. And in order to do that, you need to understand your viewers need to understand a little bit. 
So there are several things to understand, which we've discussed in the book, but I'll try to go through in a, in a brief manner and try to make, make it clear. The first surprise is that Marxism has entered American politics, American thinking, American judiciary through the side door called, through an indirect mechanism called critical race theory, which is nothing but Marxism. Now, when you mention this to even those who propose critical race theory in the United States, they don't want to accept that it is Marxism because Marxism is a taboo. Americans just don't like being Marxist and all that. Uh, they're very proud of their free market and free speech and capitalism and all of that. So when you tell them that this critical race theory, which is the new, uh, the wokeism is a popular word for it, uh, it has entered their lives as a progressive, uh, extreme liberalism kind of uh, ideology. Uh, people have a tough time understanding. But the fact is, Marxism starts with the with the idea that all societies are consisting of oppressors and oppressed. And so in any society, you find that you divide those two. And Marx was basically talking about oppressed economically. He didn't talk about religion. He didn't talk about race. He didn't talk about sexual orientation, gender. Those are recent, recent additions and adaptations of Marxism. So uh, Marxism goes through a long history, which I will, which I've explained in the in chapter one of our book, but I will skip that. Today, Marxism has been adapted instead of economic classes, it's races. And so it's blacks are the oppressed, whites are the oppressors. And of course, I accept that there are there's a lot of justification for that in the American context. So this critical race theory, this is how it emerged. Before there was critical race theory, there was critical legal theory. That's where Chandra Chud is uh, plugged in. And Harvard, a Harvard professor came up with something he called critical legal theory, which he said he applied the Marxist logic and he said that the oppressed are blacks in the judiciary, in the legal system, in the way the courts make decisions. And he gave judgments. He gave uh, evidence that sentences against blacks are more serious. And uh, for the same crimes, the whites may get, may get away. He gave that kind of evidence and he came up with critical legal theory. And then this was generalized to all aspects of society, universities, uh, businesses, civic society, everywhere, not just judiciary. And so that became critical race theory, a kind of an expanded form. And now it's entered the school system and they're teaching it all over the place. Now, this is surprise number one, that Marxism has entered the United States. Surprise number two is that it's entered India. And the way it's entered India is that a lot of important bestseller books have been written in this country saying that caste is race. And so if you if you if there is any caste orientation, people are preferring a certain caste or biased towards a certain caste, it's a form of racism. Now, this in the United States legal context has a huge consequence because there are very tough laws against racism. If somebody in the workplace uh, claims racism, there is special procedure that has to be carried out, special investigation that has to be carried out. There are special laws, uh, you know, protecting uh, mi minority religions called protected classes. Protected classes are people who cannot be, you cannot take actions against them. They have to be protected. So all of this has now been mapped to what is called critical caste theory. That's a term out of Harvard, critical caste theory. So now critical caste theory is being superimposed to Indian society. So that brings us to India. So basically, uh, Brahmins and upper castes are oppressors. Dalits and lower castes are oppressed. 
this is true for all Brahmins and all Dalits. It's not at the individual level. If you as a Brahmin have done nothing wrong, but the fact that you are a Brahmin by birth makes you an oppressor. And Dalit may have done a lot of things wrong, but because he's Dalit by, by, as a group identity, he's protected class. So this, this designation is not at the individual level based on the individual behavior, but your birth-based group affiliation. And then, then this is, has been extended through uh, uh, intersectionality, which is an adjunct of critical race theory, to include other minorities. So, for example, uh, Muslims are now oppressed. Muslims are called classified as oppressed. Okay. And Hindus are the oppressor. And then, then LGBTQ stood up and said, okay, you know, include us as victims. So the LGBTQ are oppressed and the people who are uh, heterosexuals are uh, oppressors. So in the, in the United States context, white, male, heterosexual, three strikes against you. They are the ultimate oppressor and all others are not. White, male, uh, you know, heterosexual, Christian, you're a Christian. So if you are black, you are oppressed. If you are, uh, if you are LGBTQ+, plus, you are oppressed by, by definition. Uh, if you are, uh, you know, somebody from a, a, a black person, you are oppressed, etc., this has been mapped to India, and this is what Chandrachud is reflecting. So that's, these are some of the thoughts that come to mind. I'm not surprised Chandrachud is like that. He's a Harvard product, uh, you see, and, and uh, so he's brought all this. Another thought that comes, since you are asking me what are some thoughts, another thought is that Indian elites love to copycat the Americans. It used to be the British, uh, you know, many generations ago. Now it's the Americans. Everybody wants to show that uh, they are very American in their lifestyle, in their thought, in their fashions, in what they consume. So for Chandrachud to quote some Harvard legal people or Harvard uh, critical race theory people is a matter of pride. Uh, certainly people in Harvard say pat his back and say, wow, you're a good guy. You're one of us. So the uh, Americans in promoting critical race theory, people at Harvard, etc., are very proud that their their man is now running the Indian judiciary. So that is these are all very important things to consider. And of course, there are a lot of counter arguments to this. There's a lot of sympathy. I have a lot of sympathy for uh, oppressed people, of course, and people who are genuinely victims. But I would say that those have to be decided on an individual merit basis. And as a judge, he must know that each case has to be judged on the individual merit of that particular uh, accuser and that particular accused and not on their identity. If he's judging on identity, he's not doing justice to what the law requires. And what he has said shows that he's now got a bias towards certain identities in favoring certain identities, protecting them and against certain identities, calling them oppressors. This brings politics of identity into the courtroom. And that's very dangerous. So it's interesting you mentioned that because what stood out for me in what uh, the uh, CGI said was essentially saying that the morality of the majority, the dominant group morality, is imposed under the garb of common morality. And therefore, there is a need to shift the conversation to uh, values enshrined in the Constitution. Now, is he making, do you think, an argument for judgments based on morality Morality, which is, again, based on Western concepts like critical race theory, where there are two groups, the oppressed and the uh, oppressors. So, you know, I coined the term Western universalism in one of my early books, Being Different. 
which said that basically uh, the West has taken its history, which is fine for itself, and its philosophy and its experiences as a result of what happened in Europe. And that they have projected to the whole world as a universal standard. And I call that Western universalism, which means that uh, our idea of justice, our idea of human rights, our idea of progress, you know, et cetera, et cetera, is the gold standard on which we're going to judge everywhere, everybody. Uh, but there is there is a Chinese universalism. China claims that all this is bullshit and they have their own idea of universalism. There is Islamic universalism. Islam claims that it has ideas of social justice, human rights, gender, economics, all of that. So, but because the West was the power, more powerful than China or India or the Islamic world in the last few hundred years, therefore their idea through their language and, and their, uh, their influences spread and, and uh, places like India have adopted Western universalism without even thinking about it. Large parts of our constitution are like that. A lot of our, our, our education system is like that, filled with Western universalism. And even our gurus adopted a lot of Western universalism the way they translated Sanskrit terms into Western equivalents. So Western universalism is really a serious problem for me because what, what if, if Chandrachud and other elitists, part of the elitist, elitism in India, bring Western universalism as their criteria for thinking, then it means that they've already subverted, marginalized, set aside our own what, we, what you may think of as Vedic universalism. We also have claims uh, uh, from our tradition about the nature of human beings, who we are, uh, the nature of the inner being, what, what constitutes justice, what, constitu what is good for the environment, how we are devoted and, and worship the environment also. All of our ideas of environmentalism and gender and social justice and ethnicity and diversity, all of those comprise what I would consider our universalism. And so that is so basically it's a clash between universalisms in which Western universalism has dominated. And recently there is a challenge from Chinese universalism. They are saying none of that matters to us. We are going to run the world, run ourselves and the world according to our own criteria and our own metaphysics. And the Islamic people have their own. But India has not asserted a Vedic universalism. Terribly sorry, despite all the talk about our culture and we are Vishwa Guru and all that stuff. The fact is that we have not been able to understand what is going on on the global stage and where our strengths are and being able to assert. So I see the game in that level. It's a very deep and broad game with huge consequences. It's, uh, it's uh, actually quite mind boggling when you say that because it just struck me when you talk about the morality of the dominant group being imposed on the uh, minority group it can also just as easily translate to the judiciary saying or the intellectual class saying that just because we are opposed to certain values of the Islamic universalism, we are imposing our morality on the Muslim community. And therefore, we are bound to accept certain values that are uh, incongruous with our society. But uh, we'll come back to that. So I think we need to get into the theoretical parts of critical race theory, because not a lot of us really understand the ramifications of critical race theory when applied to India. I was reading this book, which is like a textbook, honestly, your new book, uh, Snakes in the Ganga. I recommend everybody read it. I haven't read it completely, but I'm in the process. You write, sir, critical race theory begins with the premise that there <clears throat> is systemic, unconscious, and pervasive racism embedded in the core framework 
of the Western society, including institutions like governmental, financial, and corporate, which results in the continued oppression of certain minorities. It draws a distinction between being non-racist, which is considered insufficient to overthrow and eliminate the systemic racism, and being anti-racist, which calls upon people to actively challenge their own biases and mindset, to question institutional frameworks and practices in order to create a more inclusive and just society. So honestly, it frankly sounds like it's, it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't sort of a situation. Even if you're not a racist, you're bound to be branded a racist simply because of your uh, white, male, whatever identity. Uh, so how would you maybe simplify critical race theory for us a little bit so, so that so we basically, understand? Yeah, basically the paragraph you read in the Indian context says it's not enough for a, a upper caste person to say I'm caste free. I, I don't bias. I'm not biased. I hire people on merit. I hire, I, I treat uh, I, people equally. That means you are part of the system and you are preserving the status quo and not interested in toppling the status quo. The only redemption for you, the only choice, legitimate choice for you is you have to actually say, I'm anti-Brahmin. You, if you're a Brahmin, you have to say, I'm against my Brahmin uh, system and my family. If you are a male, you should say, I'm anti-male. In other words, you have to actively fight your own identity because it's the oppressor identity. If you are not fighting your own identity and you are neutral, if you are saying, I'm casteless, I, 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 I feel all genders are this equal and they all have equal rights, and I feel that all religions have equal rights, you are part of the problem because by default, the, the oppressor will continue and you are part of that oppression. And so basically what you are doing is a hoax. You're pretending to be neutral and, and good, but you know very well the game is such that it's stacked in your favor. And since the game is stacked in your favor, the rules are in your favor, you don't want to change those rules. So you are saying I'm okay, neutral and all that. So that's what he's what this particular paragraph is trying to say. You have to, if you are a Hindu, you have to actually denounce Hinduism. You have to announce the, according to them. If you say that, look, my Hinduism is fine and your Islam is fine and your Christianity is fine, then then you know what you are doing is by default your majoritarian values and morals as a Hindu will keep dominating society. So you have to top. In other words, you got to start hating yourself. Basically, it's a it's a it's an argument that says. Because you are the oppressor, uh, you know, you've been born into a certain family and a certain identity, and that makes you an oppressor. Whether you personally are, doesn't matter, but you are born in that. You're enjoying the benefits of that structure. You see, uh, you, are, you, you, were, you were privileged to go to a certain school. You, you got a certain accent. You, you got certain coaching. You know certain fashions and styles. So all of that culture that you have inherited is a form of cultural capital. They use the term cultural capital. So you are an elitist by the way you've been raised and how you were born, whether you personally believe that or not is not relevant because maybe unconsciously you are a racist and you are uh, an elitist and an oppressor, even though consciously you don't think so. So the only thing, only saving grace for you would be if you start fighting against your own identities, whether it is your gender identity, whether it's your religious identity, whatever caste, whatever identity it is, you should fight against it, which means dismantling all the structures that exist in society. This is why they had this conference called Dismantling Hindutva. 
conference, you know, and our people didn't understand what exactly is going on. Our people thought that we just we'll just counter it by hating this scholar, that scholar. And they came up with very superficial remedies because they understood the problem very superficially. So this book is a way to educate our people that the problem is far deeper and you need to understand it at that level. Right. So what I understand is that every identity that they think is an oppressor identity needs to be actively fought and dismantled. Yes. To a point where Hinduism and itself becomes a oppressor construct yes. that needs to be dismantled, leading yes. to conferences like Dismantling Hindutva, which was frankly just euphemism for Hinduism. Right. Now, what I want to understand is when we are talking about dismantling social constructs and we are, when we are talking about dismantling every paradigm that conforms to the oppressor identity, whether it's male, whether it's Brahmin, whether it's any caste other than the so-called oppressed castes. What are we really talking about? Because critical race theory says that there is inherent bias in all of the institutions. This means there is bias in the government, in the judiciary, in schools, in financial institutions, so on and so forth. So when we are talking about dismantling these constructs, what are we talking about in practical terms? What are so, they trying to do in practical terms? So in practical terms, I'll explain why we call this Breaking India 2.0. Because in practical terms, you're talking about dismantling India. You're talking about dismantling all the structures of India. The argument is that, that the, all the structures were built by elitists. But that is true of every society. You know, in every society, there's a small percentage of real movers and shakers and influencers. It is never the majority who change things. The majority follow ideas like Marx was one guy who started something. Jesus Christ was one guy who started something. Muhammad, uh, Buddha, uh, Gandhi. I mean, usually whether it's Einstein in physics, whether it's some medical breakthrough or whether it is some whatever kind of breakthrough usually a small percent of the people in any society are doing revolutionary thinking, pioneering work, and then they battle it out amongst themselves and, and they try to get support from the masses and then masses follow them or don't follow them. So, you know, the fact of the matter is all history of every country, every culture, every society, every religion is quite messy because it it's not only our history is messy or white history is messy in africa there are blacks fighting blacks there are there is history of slavery of blacks uh, enslaving blacks there is history of all kinds of things there is there, you find the same thing in china you find the same thing in the history of the arabs everywhere in the world you find a very messy history now as a result of this historical process over thousands of years certain structures that people call civilization have emerged Certain values have emerged, certain morals have emerged, certain certain do's and don'ts, certain conventions have emerged. So if you are out there dismantling all the structures because they come from elitists and these elitists by definition are oppressors because they built a structure for their own good and then they passed it on to their kids. So they are the inheritors of these very elitist, privileged kind of structures. And therefore, if the argument is you must dismantle all of them, you're talking about dismantling civilizations. You're talking about dismantling everything the human beings have built. Now, it is true that this history is messy, but it's all over the world. 
It is also true that this messy history, while it has a lot of crimes and a lot of injustices against various people everywhere in the world, it is also true that the same elitists also made major breakthroughs. They made breakthroughs in medicine. They made breakthroughs in philosophy. I mean, the same so-called elitist Brahmins also developed Sanskrit grammar. We have the Panini and we have, uh, uh, you know, Patanjali who came up with the yoga. We came up with mathematicians. So you will find in every civilization, Chinese civilization in the same way, uh, you'll find that whatever civilization you look at, uh, some of the great accomplishments were done by their leading thinkers. And 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 also at the same time, the, 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 the history is quite messy, has a lot of problems. So if you start dismantling everything, what will happen? What will happen is China says, hell no, we are not interested in this wokeism and they boycotted it. So China will survive. Okay, China is very happy that America is going woke and India is going woke because they'll self-destruct. So what you'll see is if there are two people and one person gets into this wokeism of self-destruction, the other person being a competitor who's a competitor will say, I'll just sit and let it happen. This guy is going to destroy himself and I'll take over. So what will happen in practice, since your question is what about practice, in practice, our neighboring countries will take over, will get recolonized. It is not like Dalits will rule India or Mus or somebody else will rule India. What will happen is Dalits will also be oppressed. They'll also be ruled by people from elsewhere who will come and fill the vacuum. So if we self-destruct, we remove the structures that protect us, that make us go forward, that allow us to compete against other, other structures and other nation states. We'll destroy all that voluntarily because we've been told to do that. Then what? That there'll be a vacuum of power. And this vacuum of power always has been filled by people who are irresponsible, who are not really out there looking for us, but for themselves. So like the British came, and they created this divide and rule among Rajas. You know, one Raja would go to the British looking for justice and the other, against the other Raja. And the British would adjudicate which Raja is right, wrong, who to support. So now it's going to be the critical race theory driven Western institutions, whether it is the Harvard ideology coming here, whether it's the U.S. Congress passing laws and figuring out who's right and what kind of sanctions, whether it is. Uh, you know, Google algorithms and these algorithms owned by these uh, mega companies are now imposing social justice and wokeism also. So that's a whole topic of conversation. Uh, I brought it out in my previous book on artificial intelligence, and that same logic continues in the new book on snakes in the Ganga. But what we are, what we are, uh, to answer your question in brief, if we continue this way, India and its structures will be dismantled and the rule, it will be foreign rule, it will be recolonization. It is not like the rise of the Dalits. It's not going to happen. It's not going to be the rise of the poor Muslims. It's not going to happen. It will be a new kind of elite from elsewhere taking over. That's what will happen if the current structures are dismantled. An alternative is to, re is to repair internally, keep the structures intact. Rather than demolishing the house, you can remodel it. You can make amendments. You can make. Uh, you can uh, improve the structures. You can have uh, have uh, you know re reform things uh, uh, in a in a continuous way with continuity in a systematic way without dismantling and toppling down the whole the whole uh, superstructure. So that that's the alternative. I think. I think I'm not proposing that we should be frozen and fixed because we are perfect. We are not. Nobody is. But at the same time, the other extreme, which says go dismantle everything, is very dangerous. We should not go that way either. 
So practically what you're saying is if we start dismantling all the structures that this theory says are a product of the oppressive class and the elite serving themselves, what we are going to do is dismantle the entire civilizational structure of Bharat, leading yes. to external colonization all over again. Yes. Theoretically, however, they want these structures to be dismantled so that the poor Dalits, the poor oppressed, the poor Muslims, etc., can be in power. Is my understanding correct? So this is yes. a very leftist, Marxist sort of a idea that's being peddled. Yes. So this is what I call, be, uh, uh, they are using useful idiots. They are using these people as useful idiots to destroy the country from within, giving them a false promise which will never be met, that okay, if you revolt from within and you overthrow your structures, your elites, your, you know, next will be the military. They will say the military is elitist or something like that, you know. So one th one institution after another, you start asking people to revolt against and and destroy from within. Uh, that this this will people are told promise that okay then your turn will come you will rule but actually that's not going to happen. You use certain people to destroy other people within your opponent civilization and your opponent culture and country, and then when there is chaos and destruction, you have a chance to come in and take over. If India were falling apart like, you know, Yugoslavia fell apart and the Middle East has all these civil wars of various uh, Muslim countries fighting each other. If India balkanized and turned into like an Iraq or, a, or an Afghanistan, it would be 100 times worse. And it's not like some Indians will rise and suddenly take over the country. It will be very, very good news for people like China to come and take over. And so uh, I, I think that people need to see the seriousness of this. And we need to sit down with all our brothers and sisters who are into this wokeism and critical race theory, including the CJI and including all these Harvard Balas, and try to honestly convince them that, listen, let's first be together as one system and protect it. And if we have if we have internal conflicts, we also have internal solutions. We have solved many problems in the last 75 years. We have solved similar problems over hundreds of years through internal. The Bhakti movement was not something brought by somebody else. It was not some Americans or Europeans or Christians who came and taught us bhakti. We had our own bhakti movement and it did, it did a lot of good. So some of these things we have to figure out internally on our own. And most of all, I would say one of the high leverage uh, you know, interventions would be if our billionaires would suddenly wake up and stop funding Harvard and stop funding this kind of nonsense against their country. And in fact, turn it around and start supporting scholarship to support our tradition, support our culture and export those ideas about a positive image of India rather than funding those who are out attacking us. That is really shameful, in my opinion. It's very it's amazing. So while you were describing this and while you were uh, talking about this, the two things that come to mind is one caravan India counting the caste of soldiers after the Pulwama attack, the caste of fallen soldiers. And to my mind, I just thought it was blind hate towards Hinduism and blind hate towards Hindus and just to drive a wedge mm -hmm. in the Hindu society. But now that you explain that they are going to say that every institution that we hold dear and we respect is essentially a construct of the oppressive uh, oppressor caste, it makes complete sense for them to divide our fallen soldiers between the oppressed and the oppressor and 
sort of signal to people that it's only the oppressed caste which is uh, dying on the front line while the oppressors are sitting and uh, you know sort of commandeering these soldiers who are going to the line of fire and dying it's it's amazing that i didn't uh, make that connection earlier and the second thing that comes to mind is pfi coming up with his document vision 2047 where they have laid out very categorically how they would want to turn india into an islamic nation by infiltrating the judiciary by infiltrating the government by allying with leftists by allying with dalits so on and so forth and all of this sort of seems to fall into place the moment you explain what dismantling all of these institution entails and how they're going to go about doing it so all the developments in the past few years you can see it in a new light yes. with uh, critical race theory and intersectionality being peddled even by our judiciary dangerously so so now that we understand briefly what crt is in your book it is interesting that we keep calling these theories liberal theories we keep saying that crt is a liberal concept and while reading your book i had this epiphany that it is probably not a liberal concept at all it is marxist and it has fundamental differences with classical liberalism and i'm going to show this um um table that you have in your book yes which uh, outlines the few differences i think there are about seven differences between classical liberalism and uh, critical race theory why, so why if don't you don't you, mind why yeah. don't you read why don't you read out these because then i can elaborate just read them out i think yes. it will be very useful so, absolutely so we'll go one by one and we can have a brief discussion on them one is classical liberalism endorses right of individuals and critical race theory talks about rights of group identities and the second is classical liberalism talks about equality while critical race theory talks about equity now can we club these two and have a you know you can explain how these two are different as far yeah. as classical liberalism is concerned Excellent. and crt is concerned excellent i'd love to so you know the french president macron made a very interesting statement he was he's against uh, this wokeism and the, all this critical race theory entering france uh, and he's a he's a very liberal guy uh, he says that the french idea of liberalism is at the individual level and you are as an individual an individual muslim has the same rights as any individual uh, any other individual in france but he does not have a collective muslim identity rights there is no such thing as islamic rights versus christian rights because that would be groups having identity having rights as a as a membership of a certain group then it gives you special rights he says france will be destroyed and the french idea of democracy and freedom and liberty and all of that which france champion uh, you know in through the revolution french revolution these will be finished the moment we get into group and identity politics and that is why france fights against Uh, the these hijab and all these kind of things where they want group rights they, as an individual you the muslim you can practice your islam we have no problem with it but as an individual you have all the same rights that any other individual has but you do not want we do not want you to come like a union of people like a union mentality and say we the muslims have different rights that we won't allow so this is the this is a very big uh, people in india respect macron and you should study his theory his thinking on how the french from the french revolution onwards it has been about individual rights and not collective rights that's that's a very important thing if indians thought that way 
then you know affirmative action and quotas would have been based on individual need and not based on jati membership and caste membership india would have been in a different state right now the second prob the second issue you raise is very important people don't realize that this corporate fashion called diversity equity and inclusion uh, sounds very nice but the word equity is not the same as equality equality means you give equal opportunities to everybody and some people will win some people will do better than others that's because of merit equity says we want equal outcomes we don't want equal opportunities we want equal outcomes so a certain number of people admitted should be women a certain number of people should be admitted should be blacks or dalit or muslims it's almost like a quota of outcomes and when you have a quota of outcomes the meritocracy suffers there there is a whole fight against meritocracy in fact harvard professor ajanta subramaniam wrote this book very famous very important powerful book we rejoined it to it in this in our book it's against iits calling them that this so called meritocracy is actually casteism disguised as meritocracy so the argument there is that if you promote equality you are going to perpetuate the structures of abuse because this business if you say that everybody has an equal opportunity then those who are privileged will do better and the underprivileged will never get a chance to compete and therefore what we need is we have to force equity of outcome and not equality of opportunities so that's the second big difference between liberalism uh, the, in the classical sense this is the liberalism of uh, martin luther king and uh, uh, you know uh, jimmy carter and john f kennedy and these are all very liberal presidents in this country they never said that you should dismantle structures i mean they basically said blacks should be given equal opportunity that's it that should be given equal and the civil rights movement in the united states is for equal opportunities so the new critical race theory people and the wokeists are not happy with civil rights movement and they are not happy with the previous uh, you know champions of uh, of uh, blacks and uh, you know uh, civil rights and liberalism because those people did not ask for dismantling structures they just wanted to dismantle the prejudice which prevents equal rights and they said that the the the, the things that are giving unequal rights those structures should be dismantled not everything else so this is this is how uh, traditional uh, classical liberalism is being toppled by critical race theory i am a i am a liberal by the way i am i am a liberal okay and, and in the united states i have mostly voted for and supported the democratic party not always i look for the merits of the candidate also but i but i would say most people who are against this critical race theory in the united states call themselves liberals but they are very upset at what has happened to this liberalism it's gone too far that's uh, very interesting the two three other points that you've mentioned as a difference between classical liberalism and critical race theory is color blindness uh, color blindness is uh, uh, a demand of classical liberalism while counter hegemony not neutrality is a feature of critical race theory and coupled with that i'd like to talk about how intellectual freedom and free speech is a feature of classical liberalism while cancel culture is a feature of critical race theory so if we could club these two where yes. we are talking about color blindness and free speech as yes. a feature of classical liberalism and yes. how that differs from critical race theory yes so you know color blindness 
or let's say gender blindness. So if we are going to hire people, we don't want to be biased about gender. Uh, we, we, we'll just pick the best person uh, or, you know, best person. That they, or if we we don't want to be biased towards religion, uh, we, we will pick the best person or or caste. Uh, they're saying that's not good enough. That is, in fact, you are perpetuating the hegemony that exists in favor of the oppressor. Uh, so what you have to do is actually have a quota for women, a quota for Muslims, a quota for Dalits. So you have to being color blind is not good enough. You need to have a special quota for those who are oppressed. This is the this is the point. Uh, uh, point that they are making. The counter hegemony uh, basically says that uh, if you allow free speech, if you allow free speech, uh, then you know the, the the people who are the elitists and who are the oppressors will get more say because the structures are favoring them. They have they own all the all the media, they own all the newspapers, they own all the classrooms, they own, they own all of the stuff, which of course is not true in the case of India. This may be an argument in the case of the United States that the white people own most of these things and the blacks have a genuine gripe. And so they want to count, they want cancel culture, meaning that they want to cancel the free speech of the oppressor. They, they cancel the free speech. But in India, you cannot say that pro-Hindu voices own most of the media or pro-Hindu voices are running the school systems because the history has been written by uh, other people not our, our own people, our own historians, the history that is taught in schools and it hasn't been changed. So in the case of India, uh, you know, you cannot make the argument that uh, perpetuating free speech will perpetuate the bias uh, against uh, against us. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I think that in India, the bias already is against Hindus, you know, so that logic doesn't really apply. But in the American context, the, basically what they're trying to say is, Cancel the free speech of the oppressor, uh, and uh, because then you give the oppressed people a chance to create a counter hegemony. I, I would say that uh, in the case of India, the oppressed are the Hindus. I mean, it, it's not about numerical numbers, but in terms of power structure, maybe numerically there's more Hindus, but in terms of power, in terms of power over the discourse, for a very long time, until recent times, the Hindus have been oppressed, the Hindus are victimized, the Hindus are the people taking pot shots at them. And even on a global scale today, even today on a global scale, Hindu, there is a lot of Hindu phobia and there is a lot of uh, this dismantling Hindutva and all this stuff is going on all over the place. And, you know, in the United States, uh, I can certainly say that the outlook for Hindu identity is not very good right now. It's not very good. So I disagree with this business that we, the Hindus, are the oppressor. And therefore, they should be cancelled culture against us in order to uh, give uh, non-Hindus and anti-Hindus a chance to topple us. I don't think that's fair. So interestingly, Rajivji, all the points that we've discussed so far, while we keep repeating ad nauseum that India is turning into a liberal state mirroring the US, uh, what we actually see is that we are turning into more and more into a Marxist uh, state, yes. not a liberal state per se, because every yes. point at the side of critical race theory, we see an action already in India. So when we talk about right, rights of group identities, we see how the rights of certain groups, certain identity groups are being reinforced. So the Muslims are saying that Muslim personal law should be applicable to the Muslims. The right to hijab should be applicable. The right to marry underage girls should be applicable because that's what Sharia says. And as an identity group, 
they are entitled to their group rights and group identity. So that we've already seen in action. We've seen equity in action because we keep hearing about how there should be women's reservations, how there should be Dalit reservation, how, why, if there are 10 people in a certain organization, why are more number of people out of those 10 people belonging to a certain upper caste and why there aren't more people who belong to a lower caste and therefore we are demanding equity of outcome instead of equal opportunity. We are talking about counter hegemony and not neutrality, which I think the CGI himself has spoken about when he spoke about critical race theory. We have seen cancel culture play out in an opposite manner, where even if you're talking about the history of oppression against Hindus, the genocide of Hindus, the riots, the violence against Hindus, the Mughal invasion, colonialism, etc., we are always told that we are perpetuating Islamophobia, we are perpetuating uh, word violence, language violence against Muslims. We are perpetuating all sorts of violence just by talking about our own history. And we've seen people get cancelled for it. Um, you've written that civilization has been oppressive is a feature of critical race theory. And we've seen that play out over and over again. So every point that you have enumerated, differentiating between classical liberalism and critical race theory, it gives me the impression that India is almost already a Marxist state in action and not aspiring to be a liberal state. So yes. um, do you agree with that assessment? Yes. So I think there's two levels of uh, problems I see happening. First is the adoption of Marxism, which is a very divisive society, because Marx says the concept of dialectic, which he borrowed from Hegel earlier, and he turned it into this economic theory and political theory. He says that there is there has to be a revolution. It has to be violent. It cannot be that you accommodate. It cannot be win-win. It cannot be that, okay, uh, you have some oppressors and some oppressed, and you got to create a new system in which everybody will be happy. You have to have this thesis has to be challenged and confronted with antithesis. And the antithesis and thesis have to have an all-out war of destruction. And only then out of that rubble, some new thing will emerge. But in the history of Marxism and on communism and all the things inspired by them, they've never been able to uh, construct anything positive out of it. They've been able to destroy. Marxism is very good at destroying what exists, but not building anything new that uh, that will replace it. So what it does is it's a wrecking ball that will destroy this big building, which maybe the building has flaws in it, and then they'll leave it alone. They'll just leave the rubble and they don't, they don't know what to do about it. None of these people in critical race theory have a vision of how to build a new society. They only have a vision to destroy the past. So this is one thing that uh, is very important to notice. Second thing to notice is who decides who's a victim? How do you decide who's a victim? Now, how did you decide that Hindus are Hindus are oppressors? Uh, you could they came up with selective selective logic, selective examples that you know, okay, this Hindu is oppressing this Muslim or whatever. But if you look at the history. Uh, for the past hundred a thousand years, it's not just British colonization. We had Islamic colonization. First of all, we should redefine colonization beyond just European colonization. We should fight this intellectual battle that we have been colonized by the Muslims long, for a long time. The fact that they became settlers in India is being used as an argument that they were not uh, colonizers because, you know, since they settled and became Indians, they cannot be called colonizers. By that logic, European whites who became settlers in America could not be considered colonizers, but they are considered colonizers. 
I mean, you cannot have two different standards. Whites are considered oppressors even though they became settlers, even though they became Americans. And, and the point is that they are oppressors because they oppressed the Native Americans and they brought in Africans and so on. But in India, just because the Mughals became settlers and built all these monuments on top of Hindu monuments doesn't mean that they are therefore exempt and they got a free pass that they cannot be called colonizers. They are colonizers. They colonize because they impose their foreign language as the official language. They're colonizers because they converted people to their religion and imposed jizya. So, uh, you know, all this business that people voluntarily wanted to uh, become Muslims to get liberated is all nonsense. Uh, even after becoming Muslims, they still got all this uh, huge amount of hierarchy within Islam. Uh, it is very obvious. So the, the arguments that are used to uh, not, not classify Muslim rule as colon, uh, colonialism is false argument. And we have to uh, fight that. So once you fight that, then it becomes clear that we've been colonized for a thousand years. So if we've been colonized for a thousand years, we are the oppressed. We are the oppressed. Now, internal to our, our society, there are some oppressors and oppressed within. Like there are some Muslim, Muslim people oppressing other Muslim people, which is very true. There are whites oppressing other whites which is also true. There are blacks oppressing other blacks. So I don't think you can have oppressor oppressed as a blanket based on identity. It has to be individual. And the law should, uh, the law should look at a case between individual X and Y and not say, okay, because individual X comes from a certain community and a certain identity and Y comes from a different community and identity. Therefore, we adjudicate based on the history of oppression by these identities. That's that's the wrong way. That law would be a sham. So the the direction in which CGI is headed is actually a sham for a law because it means you, your adjudication will be based on the identities of people. You will give more points to the evidence from uh, somebody based on uh, you know their identity as opposed to somebody else, regardless of the merits of, and on an individual level. So I think it's a really a fight between individualism and collectivism. It's a fight between individualism and, and identity politics. That's really the troubling thing that is going on. That, along with this Marxism of destructive Marxism, these two are a very explosive cocktail that has happened, that has entered India. So I had kept my constitutional question uh, for a little later. But since we are talking about CGI and since we are talking about how CRT is playing out in India, do you think, given everything that you've written about and everything that we've discussed so far, that in parts, our constitution and our law is already critical race theory in action? Because you see acts like the SCST Atrocities Act, where somebody gets legal shield because of their identity. The community gets a shield because of their identity. They get... Uh, far more power to accuse another individual with or without merit because of their identity and the person who's being accused gets thrown in jail without a fair hearing most of the times because of their identity that's one two when we have reservation we also have conversation about as i said why there aren't more dalits in the system why there aren't more muslims in leadership roles so on and so forth so these two things put together and the fact that there are protection and rights extended specifically to identity groups 
for example, the Muslim personal law for Muslims specifically, which are incongruous with the culture of the nation, do you think in part our constitution and the law of the land is already conforming or, or is already critical race theory in action and that is where the danger lies? Yes, I think a large part of uh, the implications of critical race theory have been sort of anticipated in India and the activists have done a very good job. What the formalization of this theory in the United States and then marketing it worldwide through uh, Harvard, Harvard Kennedy School, and their their graduates go to the U.S., all these think tanks, they go to the, the seminaries in the churches, they go to the U.S. Commission on Religious Freedom, they go to the, uh, the, the United States State Department, etc., etc. They go to the media, they are the ones who go out, and the Harvard has all these training programs in the Neiman School of media they have training programs for journalists and media people and and all these guys that write these nasty articles in new york times and washington post and wall street journal and bbc etc etc they're all products of this thinking so you know what you have is a, the world's most powerful university and the most the biggest brand one of the biggest brands in the world across all institutions all kinds of civic society now embracing this as a very as the sort of future vision that they have to dismantle structures and whatnot whatnot and they've come up with a very nice uh, you know theory that is being taught all over the place it's being taught uh, and then the popular version is wokeism which has entered the political life of this country what this means is that the dangers which were already there the dangers of india falling apart because of all these little little things happening that you mentioned now it is all being put together and justified on a global level and pressure, heavy pressure will be coming, more and more pressure will be coming from overseas. So now, you know, there is something called ESG uh, in the corporate world. Uh, your ESG ratings will decide how much funding you get, what will be your stock price in the international uh, shares market, how many investors will buy or not. And ESG stands for whether you're a good corporate citizen. E is environment, which is fine. We respect that. S is societal, which basically comes to equity and these kind of things that we've been talking about and g comes to governance whether your governance corporate governance is good now when you look at esg uh, as a corporate movement to see that uh, how this is this is going to bring crt into the into to the business because everybody from reliance to tatas to everybody is now jumping up and down embracing C esg and they're bringing in esg consultants to do an audit and who are the ESG consultants? They're American companies. They're Indian brown-skinned people trained by the American bosses. They are people like Ernst & Young, Deloitte, PricewaterhouseCoopers. They are McKinsey-type people. They are these kind of people. And so they are bringing this sort of a very fashionable thing, which Harvard Kennedy School and Harvard Business School have developed. And the World Economic Forum is a part of this. The World Economic Forum is a major force in spreading these kind of ideas. So what they are doing is bringing a certain ideology which will dismantle uh, India in, in many ways, not just the legal system, but corporate India also. India Inc. is going to be in trouble because they'll start having quotas. They now have a lawsuit against Cisco in Silicon Valley that uh, some Brahmin oppressed some Dalit, which turned out to be total sham. And now they're having these caste workshops in Microsoft and in Facebook and all these companies are having caste workshops to give caste sensitivity to their corporate people and uh, and look out for caste biases and make sure that they're not bringing in too many Brahmins and they're bringing in more Dalits and minorities, Muslims, all that. So now what has happened is 
in every company, there is a DEI officer, diversity, equity, inclusion officer. This is this is true in corporates. It's true in government offices, in uh, universities. It's true in IITs. IITs have installed a DEI officer. So what has happened is when you create a DEI officer, this DEI officer is typically somebody trained in this left-wing ideology. It is not somebody who knows anything about our, our point of view. There are training centers that certify DEI officers to place them in corporate jobs and in, uh, in other institutions. And these DEI officers certified by these institutions bring with them a certain bias against Hindu culture. So I learned all this in, while I was in Canada. And they told me that uh, the DEI officers, they have them in police departments for religious sensitivity to make sure that they are sensitive towards religious diversity. And they come in the name of pluralism. Nice words, pluralism, multiculturalism. But the DI officer tends to be either a Muslim or a Khalistani. Either a Muslim or a Khalistani. They said that most, these Hindus told me, they've done a survey in the Toronto area and they gave me some statistics that out of so many DI officers that they looked at, hardly 2-3% were Hindus. Uh, maybe 5-10% to were Christians. Most of them were Muslims or Khalistanis because these people made a strategic plan that because there is this job opening, it's a nice juicy job, pays well. And it's very high leverage, gives them a lot of influence and power. They want to train young men and women to fill those posts. So you see, it's happening in India now. It's happening in India that in the HR department, you have you have these kind of biased people. They're usually not sympathetic towards the Hindu cause. They may be speaking Hinduism. Uh, uh, they may be speaking Hindi, uh, maybe very personally in their personal life, very friendly towards Hindu causes have a Hindu name and all of that. They may call themselves practicing Hindus, but they are not politically savvy and organized. This is an area that the Sangha Parivar should have done something. They should have trained DEI officers. They should have started an academy to train HR department people and create lakhs of graduates and put them out there uh, in the HR departments. But you see, this takes vision. This is what why I'm writing these books to create to create awareness. Our people are sleeping. Where is the leadership on all this? On the one hand, we are saying that we are this Vishwa Guru and all that, but it is other people who are the Vishwa Guru managing us and and taking hijacking us, taking over even in our own country, hijacking the infrastructure. I won't be surprised if at some point in time, these people start training Hindu priests to put them into Hindu temples and with a certain ideology, you know. They already got the dominant uh, academies in Bharatnatyam. In I'm telling you, in, Varan in Varanasi and various places, the most prestigious academies for Bharatnatyam and Hindu dance and all that are, are run by Christians, many of them. And they they are they are now entering, uh, you know, uh, uh, they've also taken Nati Shastra and adapted it for stories about, you know, Mary, Jesus, all those kind of things. You know, and I, I and DEI, I've already said, to enter the corporate structure, they're doing DEI. There is an organization called uh, uh, Religious Freedom in Business Foundation. That's an American organization. Uh, it is targeting HR departments uh, to bring, in the name of religious freedom and pluralism, bring in a Judeo-Christian and a kind of an anti-Hindu view. And they've entered India. They've entered India. They have an uh, MOU with MIT uh, University in Pune. Uh, and they're going to do the, the big conference in September 2023. And they want to 
promote uh, their ideology in the corporate world and they're going to going to Tata's and all these big companies Reliance and Infosys and bringing them in initially they will talk a lot of good stuff about Hinduism they always do that wherever they go they will talk about Hinduism is a great religion it's very culturally nice and it's made contributions to the world and in their website, they have deities, they are doing all, they're celebrating Diwali, they're promoting all this because they want to be very friendly, get in the door, get their people in the door. And they're going and they're installing a religion expert for multiculturalism and religious pluralism. They're installing a, a religious, they're installing a, an expert on religious freedom inside the corporate world. And this religion, religious freedom person is similar to the US Commission on Religious Freedom. The U.S. Commission on Religious Freedom is anti-Hindu. They always, every year, they're coming out with these reports on why Hindus are no good and Hindus are persecuting minorities and this and that. And the people that testify there, the people whose evidence they count, they are not Hindu people. I go there all the time and they don't, they're not listening to what I have to say. I'm cancelled. But I go there because I have a right, I have a right to go there. I go to Washington, I go to the commission and I talk to these people. They have to talk to me, they have to listen to me, but they don't include my testimony. Guess who writes the uh, the U.S. Commission on Religious Freedom report on India every year. It's a Pakistani, young Pakistani Muslim man. I met him. He got a Ph.D. from American University on religious violence in South Asia. And he's, a, he's an expert. So what, the, what our opponents are doing is training young men and women for key jobs uh, in government, in uh, corporate, in academics, in police departments, uh, you know, etc. They are, they are training young people like we are training young people for it uh, we think that we train our people for it and medicine and those kind of things but they are training their people for hr departments uh, you know because they, they, they know that this esg movement and this dei movement is a very powerful lever it's been around for 10 years it's much longer but over the last 5 10 years it's picked up steam in the united states and now in the last few years it's come to india our people still don't know what the game is. They don't know there's a game going on. Our people don't even know there's a game going on, how it's being played and what is going on. We are just sleeping and dreaming and feeling, you know, very proud of ourselves. And we are this Vishwa Guru and all that stuff. Somebody just said that, you know, whatever you're saying is extremely scary. And I agree, it's um, extremely scary. But I'm going to move on to the next part of your book. It's the third big story that you address in your book. And I'll read out one passage. Um, part two analyzes three major centers at Harvard, those established by Anand Mahindra, Lakshmi Mittal, and Ajay Piraval, each in their respective family names. Each of them have donated several millions of dollars for the work being carried out. Though we discuss these three as specific examples, they're merely illustrative. Now, you've mentioned these three industrialists, and we know for a fact that all of these centers in Harvard, in a lot of other institutions in the US, which are funding these studies, which are pushing critical race theory, which are pushing intersectionality into Indian uh, polity, they are funded by these industrialists. So what do you make of it? What are the kind of researches that are being uh, funded by these industrialists and you know you also somewhere in your book talk about it is entirely possible that they are completely unaware of what their money is being used for it can be malice but it can can also be um, you know just ignorance of what is really happening and how it's damaging India 
So could you give us a brief on how the how India Inc., how the industrialists of India are funding our own demise? Yeah, you know, uh, uh, Mahindra Humanity Center, no doubt is what it is, is named after his family. And uh, their director uh, is one of the world's top two or three postmodernists who hates the idea of nation states. He considers India kind of borderline fascist and not a proper democracy. He's given, uh, a, a, you know, in our book, we've so quoted him. Uh, he's given these uh, interviews to uh, Indian Express and various Indian newspapers saying all this stuff. So it's not a very uh, in a doubt that uh, the people who are running that place are anti-India and anti-Indian civilization and anti-Hinduism and against our Indian government. Why would Mahindra be giving that money? I don't know why, why. what is going on with these guys. But it is not total ignorance because, you know, you see every so often the Mahindra's family comes and they are felicitated and they have these selfies and they have a banquet and the Mahindra Center celebrates that Mahindra's have come. So they are big shots. They are given that treatment, royal treatment, because they've got a building. There is a building called Mahindra Humanity Center, uh, you know, and that that's uh, that, so it's out in broad daylight. People say, why are you naming them? I'm not naming them. They've named themselves. I mean, they're not giving this money anonymously. This is all very clear. So then there is this Mittal. Uh, it's called Lakshmi Mittal and Family South Asia Institute at Harvard. Nothing could be more clear than what that is. And when they have these events, you know, in the backdrop is the Lakshmi Mittal banner. You know, it's all, it's all very clear. So they are bringing all these guys like they sometimes promote uh, this Ajanta Subramaniam who's talking against IITs and they bring in some people like uh, uh, Suraj Yengde who says he's an Afro-Dalit and he's, he's a Dalit poster boy at Harvard who's being promoted at the Harvard Kennedy School. And they all related all these different departments and schools are like one ecosystem related. The problem is not just their money. More important than their money because Harvard got enough money of its own. But the money gives them the right to put their name and that name gives credibility to all this nonsense. You see, when somebody wants to open doors in India, they just come and say, I'm from the Mahindra Center. You, you go, who's going to stop that? You think Niti Aayog has the courage or anybody has the brains and insight to say, hey, listen, let's check them out. Just because it's got Harvard bread and in that next to it is, you know, Piramal or uh, Mittal or one of these guys, that's enough to open doors. That's enough. And they plus they got a lot of money. They, they're whining, dining. They're very fancy people. They stay in five-star hotels and they have nice banquets, high-class lifestyle. And the Indian people love to be, uh, uh, you know, given that kind of treatment. So what Harvard has done uh, with these uh, Indian billionaires is worse than uh, what Oxford did during the British era. Because Oxford did not have the, the uh, same alliance and same legitimacy. They did buy out several Rajas. You know, Oxford and Cambridge would buy out some Rajas. The son would go and play polo and uh, hang around with some white women and feel very happy and proud. And they would give him treatment like he's some royalty. And in exchange, the Raja would open doors. Okay. But that the, the people at Oxford were all white people doing scholarship on India. Okay. They're using Indians at a lower level. But now Harvard has hired Indians. Harvard got Indian people from Amartya Sen and Sugata Bose and They've been around for 30 years. I've been 20, 25 years. I've been tracking them for a long time. Uh, now the Indian billionaires have stepped in. So there's Tarun Khanna running the Mittal Center. There is Baba running, Homi K. Baba running the uh, Mahindra Center and so on. Uh, so Indian brand name at the highest level of respect and credibility in India 
uh, an Indian people or uh, Indian origin with Hindu names in charge of these centers at Harvard, who would stop it? And there has been no study until our book. There has been no study on this. Nobody had the courage to point it out. Now, I'll tell you something that uh, uh, most people don't know. Do you know my book, this latest book, Snakes in the Ganga? We had a signed contract with one of the largest publishers in India. I won't name them because they're friends. It was less than 90 days before launch that the top guy calls me and says, we, we can't publish it because, because you're naming too many Indian billionaires. And, and you should uh, you should remove their names. I said, what do you mean remove their names? That's the story. And they are not shy of themselves uh, coming out and doing all these things. Why are we afraid? So he said, it'll be bad for my business because they may blacklist me and, you know, whatnot, whatnot. He, he didn't want to. Uh, then he sent it to a legal review committee. And these legal review people came and said, that while we are saying nothing wrong, we're not lying or saying anything wrong, but, you know, it, it's not kind of politically correct. It was, they were afraid of the, the PR consequences, even though legally what we are saying, we are backing every single thing, you know. And if we are wrong, we'll correct ourselves. There's nothing, nothing uh, about that. We want to be accurate and we want to be fair. And we are not insulting them. We are not saying they have done some, anything criminal. They have done nothing. The billionaires have done nothing criminal. They are taking their money and using it the way they want to, which is their right. It is their, absolutely their right to go and purport, promote the people who are anti-India. That there is free speech and they have a right to do that. There is nothing unlawful about uh, an Indian promoting anti-India uh, you know, scholarship. That happens. But it is a moral issue. To me, it is a question of ethics and integrity. They are, if they were to be promoting in India actively that, hey, we are, we are fighting against India all over the world, that would be one thing. But I don't think they want to do that because they make their money in India and they want their Padma Awards and all these kind of things in India. You know, so it is to me, it's more like a hypocrisy. Now, the question is whether this hypocrisy is intentional or it is some kind of unintentional, unconscious contradiction. I don't know. I don't know what it is. But if they are ignorant, shame on them because a businessman worth his sort would get an annual report from a neutral auditor about every factory, every industry, every venture he's done. Why don't they get an annual report on their Harvard Center? Get somebody like us, get somebody like you, get neutral people, not a report from Harvard, which would be self-serving because Harvard would obviously give them a very positive report on what they're doing. But if they are not subject matter expert themselves, and I can say, okay, Anand Mahindra doesn't know postmodernism. And so he doesn't know how to understand all these things, what the nuances are. Fine. That's okay. But he can get some experts. He can get experts who will look out for the best interests of India and who will review Harvard's performance under his name and under his money. And whether he accepts their, the audit report or not, at least he'll be able to say, I've done an independent audit. Like they get auditors to do financial audit and legal audit to make sure they're in compliance in their factories and in their businesses, they could certainly do a civilizational audit. And they should be getting... So not having having been in this for a decade, each of them, and not having had an independent report of audit, I say shame on them. Something seriously wrong. So we are, we are positioning ourselves as sort of like auditors to... We are helping the Indian billionaires understand what is happening in their name and if it's happening without their knowledge they should be writing to me thank you thanking me and saying thank you rajiv you have opened our eyes they should be thanking me because free of charge without costing them anything unlike all these expensive high-priced auditors 
I have done them a favor by opening their eyes. That is if they don't know what's going on. Now, if they do know what's going on, then, you know, it's part of the game. Then are they in it because they get on the board? They, it's good for business. They have contacts. Their kids get into Harvard. Uh, you know, they get they go, go around jet setting with the global white elites and they are one of them. I mean, I don't know what combination of factors works in their favor or it could just be a bandwagon. Uh, some billionaire started this and everybody else wants to be in the same boat because we have a list of a few dozen people of Indian origin funding Harvard, a few dozen people. And these are lists on their websites when they when they, when they have a there's a Bajaj family. There's all kind of people, you know, they have somebody, somebody funded this chair, somebody funded an annual scholarship, somebody funded a conference, whatever. All of these guys are acknowledged. Harvard is very good about acknowledging its donors. And it's a list of who's who in India. Somebody, somebody should. I mean, I'm coming in February along with Vijaya, my co-author. We are coming to India in February and we would love to go to Bombay. And we would love somebody to organize a nice amicable conference where these industrialists come and discuss with us. I would like Anand Mahindra, I would like Mittal, I would like Piramal, I would like Tatas, I would like all these kind of people or some of them to come and let's clear it out. Let's have an amicable discussion. I, we will put our facts on the table. What we have published in the book is only the tip of the iceberg. We know a lot more than what we published in the book. Because the book is already large and we didn't want to kind of uh, overdose people. You know, we didn't want to put too much out there. So we have a lot more information about what is going on in the names of these billionaires. And indirectly, the eco, the, the, the echo effect and snowball effect that they have created. And I would say they ought to know about the Indian government should know about this. Uh, Niti Aayog is... Uh, Niti Aayog is... Uh, invited these kind of people from Harvard, like Tarun Khanna is a big shot in the Niti Aayog and he's on all kind of committees, uh, you know. But so if the industrialists have been blind and they haven't, uh, uh, you know, in, or at least to my knowledge, they haven't looked into it to see what what their what's the effect of their funding. Why not the government? Why not the Indian Council on Cultural Relations, which is headed by Sahasra Budeji? Very nice man, a good friend. I like him as a person. But he runs his, uh, he's in charge of Indian culture all over the world. All the Nehru centers report to him. The cultural attaches in various embassies report to him. Uh, he's the eyes and ears of Indian culture. And he's supposed to be projecting Indian culture. So they should have done the report we are doing. That this book should have been written by them. They should at least now fund us. Or if not fund us, sponsor us. They have, we haven't had any help from anyone. They should have taken a copy of our book and put it in every embassy uh, around the world and every consulate. Uh, we haven't had that support. We haven't even been able to get the help of the Indian consulate or Indian embassy. Even when invited to events in the United States, very prestigious events in the United States, they don't show up. So we've had received no support of any kind, not even moral support. And yet we are doing the job that the Indian government should be doing. Why not the HRD ministry? Why haven't they, uh, as a matter of educational policy and studying what how India is represented elsewhere, why not the Ministry of Culture in India? So, you know, I could, I could list a lot of institutions, not just the billionaires, but various other institutions. Why hasn't RSS done a report like this? Why not? I mean, they should have. Why not uh, India's investigative reporters, journalists, media? Why not? So, you see, we are exposing uncomfortable truths, things that 
take a person outside his comfort zone and he has to face now what he what doesn't want to face because people want to live in this nice comfortable life you know everything good and all we are we are vishwa guru and we are doing great and we are winning cricket match and and you know all of this stuff happening but uh, so we are uh, we every chapter of this book is got uh, explosive stuff in it uh, because we just all we want to do is create more dialogue more discussion uh, we are not saying that we have the final answers we are we, you know we know everything we are just humbly presenting the facts that we found which are very disturbing and we want to encourage other people who are thinkers serious thinkers like us to come to the table and let's talk about it in a very open amicable manner and be able to convince each other so that's what we're trying to do right so have any of these industrialists or any of their representatives reached out to you at all either no. in response to the questions you may have posed them while writing this book or are this really in so many discussions have been held has there been any conversation from any industrialist or their representatives at all about no. uh, all the revelations in the book nothing at all except they uh, devdat patnaik who's funded by reliance i'm told uh, works with them uh, that's what people say uh, has written a nasty article against us in a midday newspaper totally unsubstantiated and midday newspaper refusing to or not not wanting to uh, you know publish our rebuttal i mean we wrote back to them and didn't hear from them so you see uh, my guess is that the billionaires will not themselves acknowledge they'll try to hide it and do cancel culture and then they'll get then some low level people on their behalf will go come fighting you know i think that may happen uh, but we are prepared because whatever if they instigate further they will only instigate more data coming out about them absolutely now sir you've spoken about the new left rising against the old left now whenever there is an intra group sort of a fight which is mostly ideological you often see an opening or a little bit of a window for you to understand the churn and to ensure that you can shift the narrative to your side so what do you make of this new left fighting against the old left what are the contours of this fight and is there a window for us to sort of understand the flux and understand the discord within the left ecosystem and capitalize on that so you know the old left is sort of like the old liberalism the classical liberalism uh which never wanted to dismantle family for example uh, this wokeism wants to dismantle family it's a structure of abuse because according to them according to them one of the things that uh, one of the institutions is family that perpetuates bias because the oppressor uh he uses his family to keep um, uh, passing on this oppressiveness uh, logic and oppressiveness habits to his children you see so mother father they pass it on by the way they talk and at the dinner table and what they watch what movies they watch what stories they read they're all biased uh, implicitly biased so families are to be dismantled now the old left didn't fight against families they didn't fight against that you know and the old left didn't fight against one religion versus another i mean maybe in india that was going on but the traditional marxism was against religions in general is not like some religions are protected but right now the muslims are protected by the by this new wokeism so what has happened is uh, when black lives matter uh, became a very emotional moment in american society 
uh, it became and and I have supported the Black Lives Matter movement. I funded them, and I'm sympathetic with the blacks. I have many black friends, so that's not an issue. But that became an opportunity for Muslims to uh, join the blacks and help them, offer them support in the United States. And then came this brought in the leftists uh, who call themselves progressive, the progressive wing of the leftists. The progressive wing of the leftists is more leftist than the previous leftists. So they came in and then brought in the LGBTQ. They kind of wanted to club various people who are and proceed and present them as sort of a brotherhood of victims. You know, all the victims are going to join against all against the oppressors and overthrow the oppressors. It's sort of like a, like a, a, you know unification of the underdogs, unification of the oppressed. And uh, this guy uh, Sura Jengde at Harvard says he wants to create the fourth world. There used to be the third world. Now he wants to create a fourth world movement where he wants to take the oppressed of United States. India, Africa, various places and unify them into a movement and overthrow all the structures of everywhere. I mean, this is like, a, a, you know, a whole new uh, uprising. But now with the benefit of social media and interconnectivity, they can connect themselves with each other better than they could in previous times. So we're headed towards something of that sort. And, you know, the, the, the question is, why do billionaires in America whether it's, uh, you know, whether you look at Zuckerberg or Bill Gates or whether you look at, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos and these kind of people who, who are billionaires making their money from capitalism. And capitalism is something that this wokeism wants to dismantle. This is part of the structures they want to dismantle. So the question is, why do these uh, billionaires who are liberal uh, through their social media and algorithms and all that, why are they supporting all these people? This is the question we've answered in the conclusion. I won't answer it now, but people should read the conclusion. It's a very startling conclusion. But in essence, the wokeism and critical race theory mobilization is being used as a wrecking ball, as useful idiots to destroy and dismantle old structures so that these billionaires have a clean slate on which they can do something. And what it is they will want to do, I've described in the, in the conclusion chapter. So a lot of geopolitics has shifted. And India is in the cross. India is in the crosshair, by the way. This is not dismantling and harming any other country as, as compared to India. And the reason is India has got a large English language people who bring all this in. India has got a large leftist people who bringing this logic in. A lot of Harvard type people. Now the corporates have brought in. These Harvard type people have infiltrated Niti Aayog. So you see, India is off guard. Because nobody, until this book came out, nobody even was a whistleblower. Nobody was saying, hey, listen, watch over this. So uh, what this book should have come out years ago. I mean, maybe we should have. We were just going on doing research and research. But what has happened is India has a very large, uh, it's a powder keg that could explode because we have so many different kinds of diversities that can be exploited to fight each other, uh, whether it's religious diversity or jati-oriented or gender or whatever. Uh, and now there is this uh, framework, strategy, uh, kind of a gloss that has been blessed and given a nice branding and very prestigious from places like Harvard. And unlike Breaking India 1.0, which was grassroots, where they were dismantling uh, people at village level, going and converting some poor people here and there, and they were not toppling top down. BI 2.0 is top down. So they're going after top judiciary, top corporate structure, 
Niti Ayog as a top planning structure. So they are going to the top, uh, top of the pyramid in every aspect of society and bringing them on board with nice. So it has to be done by a prestigious place like Harvard. It couldn't be done by some local church. They could not have the clout to, to do that. They have to bring in a Harvard World Economic Forum. Wow. So you get yourself a seat at the World Economic Forum. So now Smriti Adani is, is part of the youth uh, group at uh, World Economic Forum. You know, I mean, I'm nothing against Smriti Adani. She's a nice lady. She's, I, I respect her. Maybe unconsciously these people are going for all this because they don't realize, they don't realize what's the big game. They have not understood the big game and therefore they are just little pawns being used and they're just going for the glamour. They'll go here and there. But all of this is adding up to a, a major, uh, major onslaught against India. So my last question, uh, I'm going to club two questions together because you're already one hour 23 minutes into the discussion and we have two questions uh, from the audiences as well. So in your book, you write, that you've contrasted how India is being dismantled to China's conduct as far as these universities are concerned. You write, we contrast this with China's presence at Harvard. China has controlled the discourse and used it to pursue its well-crafted nationalistic agenda. Now, to my mind, it, it, um, it is a little dichotomous because we say that the critical race theory is Marxist ideology. However, at the same time, communist China has been able to battle this Western critical race theory ideology and stick to its cultural roots. Not only that, they have infiltrated universities. They have made sure that they are influencing polity in several nations, whether it's the United States of America, whether it's Canada. In fact, there were reports of Chinese police stations in Canada itself so they have managed to do this to battle a Marxist paradigm, while India seems to be conceding more and more to become a Marxist state. So this uh, uh, sort of confusion, how a communist state is battling a Marxist idea, while a mixed economy and a civilizational state like India is conceding more and more to a Marxist ideology. Can you explain this dichotomy, how that's happening, and also what the Indian government can do to uh, battle this entire uh, narrative that's being formed? Yeah, you know, this is a, such a huge question. Actually, uh, we're writing a whole book on China. Uh, we're writing several books as an outgrowth of this. One is going to be on uh, on the, uh, the attack on IITs. That's going to be like a 200-page book come out in the next 60, 90 days. And another one on China, another one on the education policy. Like that, there are a lot of lot of dimensions to what we've uncovered in this book. So this book is kind of a foundation for many others. So as far as China is concerned, in a nutshell, China is the Communist Party runs China. But this Communist Party has adopted a capitalist uh, marketplace uh, controlled by the Communist Party, but capitalist in the sense of unleashing competition among the Chinese entrepreneurs to really go and each of them can stand up and become very rich and all that, provided they stay within the, with the under the glass ceiling of the Communist Party rules. So they've got a controlled capitalism. It's not an uncontrolled capitalism. It's ca controlled capitalism. And that is the combination of very unique sauce that they have invented, which combines all these things. And they've learned to get the better of the United States, take all their secrets, take all their cash and their money and investment and you know intellectual property and steal some of it 
and then to turn it into products and sell it back to them, make money out of them, really made a fool out of the Americans over the last few decades. Uh, and that, I think, is kudos to their insight. We thought that we understand the Western world better because we know English. And these guys don't know English. They can't understand, but they turned out to be smarter. And, and we thought that because uh, we have more software people and we are, we are running the software of the world. But guess what? In software-driven enterprises like artificial intelligence, they are way ahead of us. And in quantum computing. So Chinese have played the game very well. And, and kudos to them for the, being so bright, you know, so clever. Now, what has happened here is they've figured out that this wokeism and critical race theory is self-destructive. And therefore, they don't want it in their country. But they've also figured out that it is very destructive to whichever country adopts it. So they want to encourage it somewhere else. You see, so now um, until two, three years ago, and this is the one thing I give credit to Donald Trump. You may dislike him for all kinds of things and his personality weird, whatever. But the one thing he did for the United States is he called China's bluff more than anyone else. Until prior to, until the Obama administration and all the way back, the Bushes, and uh, certainly the Clintons were the ones who really sold out to the to the uh, Chinese in a big way. You know, for so, so many decades, China was ruling and they were infiltrating Harvard. They set up so many things in Harvard. And do you know the Harvard funding that comes from the Chinese billionaires is very different from the funding that comes from Indian billionaires because China will not let Harvard uh, in any way that is involved with their center and any of that. They will not let them talk about the Uyghur Muslims. They will not talk about the Tibetan freedom fight. They will not talk about uh, the Taiwanese independence and uh, democracy. They will not talk about Hong Kong riots. They will not talk about human rights issues in China, about lack of freedom and democracy in China, about whether they started COVID or not. All kind of things are taboo because the Chinese will not let Harvard do that and Harvard obeys them. Whereas in India, it's the other way around. The Indian billionaires not only failed to promote pro-India things at places like Harvard, but actually allow anti-India things. So Chinese have played this game very well. Only now in recent years, in the last few years, the FBI is investigating. They've thrown some Harvard professors to jail. You know, all this is coming out. That, uh, But people are now, the FBI says it'll take 10 years at least to clean up the, uh, the China influence that is so deep into American society. It'll take 10 years. They're all over the place. They've got such a large number of Chinese scientists and thinkers in various biotech companies and IT companies and quantum computing companies and all that and learning, learning, learning. And, you know, a few of them get caught for espionage. Many of them just pack their bags and go back and they are welcome there. So they played this game very well. What? So this has come out. What has not come out is the game in India that China has played. Uh, places like Ashoka University. Uh, in our book, we've given a small section on the China Studies Center at Ashoka University. And we've also talked about one of the one of the things that uh, my co-author Vijaya is, I think either today or in the next few days, the a video is coming out where uh, what we are exposing is how uh, China has co-opted people like uh, Tarun Khanna, who's the head of the Lakshmi Mittal Center at Harvard, uh, to talk about meritocracy. And Tarun Khanna is a very, very sophisticated man. He will not stick his own neck out and say anything negative, but he'll bring in other scholars of Indian origin to do that. So he brings in, you know, uh, Varshne, uh, who was a Harvard guy, but left and went somewhere else. He'll bring in, he'll bring in various people. We've mentioned them. Uh, 
Uh, and and when they talk about uh, there was a conference that they organized in uh, in uh, China uh, on meritocracy comparing China and Indian meritocracy and the Chinese speakers and we quote them in this the Chinese speakers brought all said great things about China how China is proud to be a meritocracy and how it is moving ahead and and this business about equal opportunities and meritocracy how they're doing so well okay the Indian speakers very apologetic that our meritocracy is not good for Dalits, is not good for minorities, very apologetic. It's kind of like critical race theory view of meritocracy. So here is a comparison between China and India, where it is, it is co-authored by Tarun Khanna, our, supposedly our own man, and he's on the advisory board of several Niti Aayog organizations. Uh, he is the one who selects what the speakers, who the speakers will be and wh why they are selected and what the papers are saying and what the abstracts are. And so you cannot, he cannot wash his hands off of it and saying, oh, you know, I was just sitting there cheering this and, and editing a book, but I didn't say all these things. He brought in these people to say all these things. So when you look at the, the way Chinese are operating, they know that, okay, a certain person can be funded and bought off and he'll say negative things. Let's do that. But another person with a lot of prestige is not going to say negative things, but he will. you can influence him to bring others to say negative things. You can organize a nice conference that he will come and enjoy all the benefits that you are giving him. And to oblige you and impress you, he will get other people to say those things. So they know this multiple levels of game. and uh, uh, But even more dangerous than what is obvious in the narrative is this huge theft of big data. This huge theft, the big data, I wrote this AI book a year and a half ago, two years ago, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Power. And that's a book which exposed how India is vulnerable because its data is being sucked up, not only to understand Indian thought and manipulate Indian behavior through social media, etc., but a lot of knowledge about, you know, how to manipulate jatis and castes and minorities and create conflicts and how to figure out you know, where the where the hot buttons are, how to impress people. So all this big data, which is the future of uh, brainwashing people, managing people from remote control, this is being uh, siphoned off into two great, two places. One is U.S. Uh, big tech companies uh, like, you know, uh, this uh, uh, fellow Sundar Pachai was uh, have a nice picture photo up he has with Modi. But I doubt our people are suspicious enough and they've launched all these kind of projects in India. And the other group that is siphoning off is China. So between the Chinese government and the American corporates, Indian big data is being siphoned off. And I've been talking about it for several years and written my book two years ago. And now in the in the Snakes in the Ganga, I've written more about it. But I don't see anything being done. I'm not even sure that the right people in India are, are aware and fully understanding what the deal is. At the same time, India is very proud that we are debating this uh, uh, data privacy law which hasn't been put into action. We have this discussion on data privacy law. Uh, theoretically, all this should be stopped. Theoretically, anyone taking big data out of India needs permission. And, and a copy of it should be with the Indian side. And India should evaluate to see what is value. Maybe charge them royalty. Maybe not even allow it. That's all theories. Nice papers being written. But in practice, none of that is being implemented. So there are these multiple... Uh, places where China is getting the upper hand on India, including inside India. But India has no such hope of 
countering it by getting into Chinese society, Chinese culture, Chinese big data, uh, infiltrating Chinese universities, infiltrating Chinese corporates. There is no uh, counter that India can do to China because they're very smart. They've closed up all that while India is very open and China is all over the place. So thank you, Rajivji. Those were my questions. And I think we finally understand uh, critical race theory much better. Uh, my takeaway from this interview is that shockingly, we are one shade away from becoming a Marxist country as far as our institutions and our policy is concerned. Um, and we are closer to implementation and the effects of critical race theory than perhaps even the United States of America. But there are two questions from the audiences that talk about potential solutions. So we'll just take those. Short answers are fine, and we can then close this uh, podcast. One is, isn't decolonization solution to all these issues? Well, decolonization is defined as a solution to all these issues. The point is, well, how do you do it? I've seen so many manthans and the, the term that we started 25 years ago, decolonization is all over the place. There are so many people who are so-called experts and do, they're doing this uh, uh, video, uh, you know, YouTube and all that. Everybody talking about decolonization. But do they really understand it? I don't think our so-called decolonizers understand it. So first of all, has anybody talked about decolonizing the Indian corporates so that they don't bring in ESG? Has anybody even talked about that? Has anybody even addressed the DEI in the Indian corporate sector as a colonial enterprise? Has anybody talked about Indian billionaires setting up these, these shops in Harvard is, a, is colonizing us, recolonizing us? So forget decolonizing, we are getting more colonized. I mean, has anybody talked about the infiltration of Niti Aayog by some of these uh, experts as a colonial enterprise? So I think before we can talk about decolonization, we have to really understand that the colonial enterprise is not just political and it's not just about writing history books. It is not, it is not just that. The colonial enterprise is in all the organs of Indian society. Now we are talking, we should be talking about decolonizing the Supreme Court of India. I doubt that's going to happen anytime soon. I just had a talk where I spoke about the colonial roots of 295A, which was so passionately implemented by our judiciary. So it's very interesting. But I don't think that's going to happen ever. The next question is by uh, Akshay Gandhi. He says, how do we patch this to neo-colonialism? I guess that closes the loop of how power grab and modern world colonization will work which is essentially what we are up against. So if you read my uh, conclusion of this Snakes in the Ganga, I talk about the coming digital caste system, which is a new kind of colonialism through artificial intelligence, through big data, through social media, through control, through surveillance of these so-called smart cities with all these cameras, surveillance, keeping track of every movement, who's doing what, scoring you on ESG, are you Dalit friendly, are you Buddh, uh, Brahmin friendly, are you male friendly, are you LGBT friendly, whose, whose hands did you shake, who was invited at your parties, who's in your selfies, and all the faces being recognized by artificial intelligence and scoring you. Uh, you know, this in China, they have a social credit system where everybody's uh, behavior is being scored and rated and classified. And then based on that, they're in a ranking how good or bad a citizen they are. And they are giving privileges or denied privileges. This is, this, is a, this is when you accuse the caste system as a system of hierarchy and privileges. This is what's happening. This is a digital caste system. 
But don't think that this social credit is only in China. It's also in the United States. It's not called social credit, but it is in the, the, the these uh, social media companies are keeping a score on every single one of them. I have a I have a profile in the, every one of these social trend, uh, social uh, you know platforms. So do you. So does everybody. And they keep track of your ideology. You are more likely to say this. You believe in this. You are opposed to that. That's their your profile using AI being kept. The governments are keeping it. So in India, the social credit system is being managed by foreigners. This is so strange. That's the ultimate colonization. That you have a global social credit system, digital caste system being managed from outside India. is not only that oh, it's a domestic problem, we can at least fight each other and try to solve our problems. Now we are not even in control because we've let loose this digital caste system, this theft of big data, this Harvard invention, uh, invasion of India through the elites. So when you combine the mindset of the elites who are running various uh, civic uh, organizations in India, from business to government to whatever. And when you combine with the loss of uh, big data where all these algorithms are spinning, how to manage Indians and whatnot, uh, you have a colonization. And I'm sorry, the whole the whole group of people, the jing bang lot running around shouting decolonization really don't understand it. They're still on Breaking India 1.0. And my book says that's obsolete, that's old. You got to understand Breaking India 2.0. I think we have a last question, which is uh, fitting to end this discussion. Uh, Ashton Leo says, do you think Marxist and Leninists like myself can find common ground with Indian nationalists? It's, I think, an eternal burning question that we all have. Can we find common ground ever? Yeah, I think you can. I have, I have a lot of sympathy for Marxism, by the way, uh, but I don't apply it in the way most people have applied it. I think Marxism as a theory of wanting to understand exploitation and end exploitation and wanting to change the, the control of the means of production. Basically, Marxism says that the means of production, originally it was economic production, then later on Marxism 2.0 said cultural production also, etc. Uh, means of any production that, that results in power uh, should be in the hands of the people. I fully agree with that. That is the dharmic way. In the dharma, there is no central church institution uh, trying to control the means of production. There was free speech, people able to talk freely, debate in a decentralized way. You can have your own deity. You don't, I, my deity is my deity. That is called my Ishtadevata. Your deity is your deity. It's not that you have to come in only. The only legitimate worship is through my deity. I, it doesn't matter. That's good for me. That's the best deity for me. But your deity is the best deity for you. And I respect that. And you respect me for it. This kind of mutual respect for different rituals uh, within the dharma. And different deities, different sampradayas, different paramparas. You know, this is, this uh, within this, the means of production of religiosity is decentralized. There is no central means of production of Hinduism. There is no central... But like the church and the mosque, there is no one book that says this is the means of production and certain high priests control it. We do not have a single uh, either knowledge-wise or deity-wise or ritual-wise or institution-wise, a single central means of production in our Indian civilization. This is actually uh, something very good for Marxists to, to think of this. Now we have exploitation. And exploitation comes in and then people fight it and it goes away and another exploitation comes in. Certainly, we need to do reforms. And our smritis are meant to be rewritten. Shruti is one. 
which is consistent. But Smriti is to be rewritten and reinterpreted. That's what the Smritis say. Manu Smriti, Manu himself says that this has to be interpreted in the, time, in the context of time and place and reinterpreted for every epoch and in every region of the country. It's not fixed like one book. So we have all the building blocks to bring some of the best qualities of Marxism in the context of dharma. So we ought to be doing that. Thank you, Rajivji. I, uh, of course, uh, disagree with Ashton uh, to a large extent. I don't think Marxists can ever find Indian ground with Indian nationalists uh, because Indian nationalists believe in the civilizational ethos of the nation. Uh, their nationalism is bound to this civilizational land, whereas for a Marxist, I would assume that uh, their civilizational ground is going to be far more a Marxist state than the Hindu civilizational state of India. Just like for the Muslim community, the Ummah would matter far more than the civilizational nation, Bharat, that they're staying in now. So I think the very fundamental of nationalism and the very fundamental of their loyalty towards Bharat is extremely different when it comes to Hindu nationalists and when it comes to Marxists, Leninists, or even Muslims. So I don't think we can find common ground, unfortunately, at least practically speaking. But can I can I can I say something on absolutely. this? Absolutely. Yeah, please go on. Please so, go on. So you know, Marxism in its pure form, you're absolutely right. There, there is all this incompatibility. But there's something called digesting Marxism into the Dharma. So the Christians digested Marxism and they came up with liberation theology. Liberation theology is a branch of Christianity, very loyal to the Bible. And that brings in Marxist ethos to help the poor and so on. So, and that is how they got rid of the, the communist movements in South America. Communism was taking South America one by one country after the other, as you know, uh, during the Cold War and thereafter. And so they're all Catholics. And yet they're turning into Marxists because they are poor and the Marxism pr 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 presents them with some solutions. So the very clever Catholic theologians came up with this idea that we collaborate with the Marxists and we bring the good things about them into the Christian context, which I call digestion. So they digested Marxism into the Christian context and Marxism as such disappeared. So, I, so a, a something similar to consider is can there be a liberation theology uh, which is a liberation dharma, a liberation dharma or something you can coin, which takes a lot of the a lot of the some of the structures and a lot of the jargon of Marxism and brings it into a dharmic context. And then Marxism as such as a threat would disappear. Because one way you one way you deal with your enemy is you destroy them. Another way is you domesticate them. It's called the domestication of your enemy. Uh, you know, many of the animals got domesticated. They're no longer a threat. Many of the wild uh, plants got domesticated. They are no longer a weed. They become a domestic, domesticated plant. You can domesticate a culture. So India, the dharmic people have to be able to do enough purva paksha with Marxism and be able to figure out, okay, there are some key elements we can bring. We can modify this, adapt that. And here is how we can do it. And then we can present it to the Marxists and say, okay, we got our own kind of Indian Marxism, if you will. It is Indian and it is our Bharatiya civilization friendly. It is not Videshi Marxism, it is Swadeshi Marxism. So why couldn't we have like a Swadeshi Islam? We could have a Swadeshi Marxism. We could have a Swadeshi Christianity where the Vedic civilization foundation is non-negotiable. And within the context of this framework, we can accommodate, it's an open architecture, we can accommodate many things. 
but of course this requires a lot of skill a lot of knowledge and a lot of vigilance so that we don't get carried away and blow ourselves up while trying to accommodate other people so i i understand your concern uh, but i also feel that there is promise in having such a project where some people who are extremely solid and non compromising in the vedic civilization could take on these other foreign threatening entities and domesticate them and adapt them for for digestion by our own system so this is a subject for a whole different podcast because i have my own set of uh, views as well which i'm open to changing but uh, no, i do, do believe that yeah because i believe there is uh, you know unlike covid there is no indian variant of islam islam is islam there is no indian variant of christianity christianity is christianity and increasingly so i'm believing that even marxism there is no indian variant it will be what it is and it will be a force out to destroy um a civilizational state based on a religion and a culture like hinduism and sanatan dharma so so just to we'll keep yeah. it for a future conference but a future discussion but just to give you leave you with a thought uh there is a lot that has to do with you know a lot of influence can be created based on perception so a lot of muslims are not really knowledgeable about islam i talk to a lot of muslims they don't know too much they just know that the there is this identity so if you get some of them to spin this new thing whether whether it is fully correct or not is immaterial as long as you say okay you are swadeshi first you are dharmic first muslim islam is a dharma and allah is just another ish devta but all those arab guys you don't need to worry about it all those kind of you don't even need to have arabic you can have a you can understand this in our terms in our language you see as long as a sizable minority buy into this you can create an internal rift in their side in their structure so americans are doing this with muslims there are people who are trying to americanize islam in a way that it is not islam that's going to be taking over america but america will just break it up and create some muslims who will go then fight the other muslims there are muslims being created to do that the united states is already doing that and as i said the the bible in its pure form and marxism in its pure form are not compatible but they created liberation theology where they got enough marxists on their side whether it was genuine whether it was honest or dishonest we won't talk about but enough marxists joined the christian side that they became the soldiers fighting the other radical marxists and got rid of them so one way you get rid of a threat is to have them have some of those people fight the rest of them okay and those people who are going to be on your side fighting the rest of them you need to train them you need to give them some ammunition some and some support and then they can be the ones who are fighting the rest i think when the forces against you are so many and each of them the the islam and the christianity and the marxism each of them on its own is very powerful and now they're uniting against us you have to be very innovative on war strategies and what i'm saying i think uh, you know our some of our uh, uh, our past uh, political strategist uh, charvak type uh, i would just say uh, political strategists in general uh, would uh, uh, would like if you look at the uh, the uh, indian uh, if you look at people like machiavelli if you look at people like machiavelli what they would suggest as a pragmatic thing i would say the indian some of the indian smriti writers maybe manu himself maybe some people in the mahabharat would suggest that you divide and rule your opponents you you bring them enough on your side 
that they will they will be the ones on your side fighting the rest of them because you cannot you're not strong enough to fight all of them so you have to sometimes become a charvak you have to sometimes become a, and fight the foreign marxist you know uh, you have to sometimes become you have to use your different uh, uh, you know forms of of our vedic civilization we have so many forms in it to decide which one is best to combat somebody i have a lot of trepidations and a lot of doubts as far okay. as that is concerned i don't know if it's achievable but sir we will have another discussion about okay. that okay um thank you so much i understand uh, finally what critical race theory is and i think uh, as i said earlier the key takeaway of this almost two hour discussion is that we are closer to the consequences of critical race theory uh than even the united states of america in some aspects and we are closer to being a marxist state than china i think those are the two takeaways uh that are going to scare me and keep me up at night but uh, thank you so much ajeev ji i look forward to speaking to you again because we've just skimmed the surface of this amazing book that i will be reading as a textbook and i recommend that everybody purchase this book and read it cover to cover it's called snakes in the ganga breaking india 2.2 uh, sorry 2.0 it's by rajiv malhotra ji and vijaya vishwanathan ji and so thank you so much rajiv ji uh, for thank sparing you. your time thank you Very so good. much i really enjoyed you are a very intelligent person i like intelligent questions and i like pushback i like your tenacity you not going to give up easily and so therefore <laughs> we'll have good conversations because i love that I, and i really thank you for a very stimulating and and enjoyable conversation and thanks to all thank the viewers so who listen thank you very much thank you so much sir thank you thank, thank you, you.